0: My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury.
1: Or substance, I crossed Utopian Plains, lonesome as eternity. The Sage and the Sojourner, I rode hard through all superficial phenomena and experience. I rode hard with hunger in my belly and fat fucking pride. I swung like bolero into the apparition of appropriation, paying my respects to the specter.
2: Hey, shot. welcome to another episode of Transmissions. It's so great to have you here. Our guests this week are Noah Lekas, who's a poet. He's the author of a great book of rock and roll inspired poetry called Saturday Night Sage. And, uh. Also on the show this week is his collaborator and a longtime favorite of mine, Ethan Miller of Comets on Fire, Howlin' Rain, Heron uh, Oblivion, the dude is a, is, a, is a lifer, he's recorded a lot of tremendous stuff, and we got into a conversation about counterculture and psychedelia and the perils of combining spoken word and rock music. I had a great time hanging out with these two guys, and I think you're really going to enjoy our wide-ranging and uh, discursive conversation. Before we get into it, I want to remind you that one of the best ways you can support the Transmissions podcast is by rating and reviewing us on your podcast service of choice. You can uh, just post something on your social media, letting people know about these great talks if you enjoy them and if you want to take your support even further want to get on the team with us then you can check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon alright, let's head into this week's episode of Transmissions I'll speak with you more on the other side
1: In the distant Vatican I heard pious screams the two steps of the like country shuffle with agrarian melodies traditional labor hymns for shoveling the sacrament in the shadow of second shift i held my breath and into
2: the cistern I went. ethan noah it's great to have you both here on the aquarium drunkard transmissions podcast thanks for taking the time
3: yeah, yeah hello man. good, good it's great here. to be here thank you
2: Your guys' new collaboration is called uh, Saturday Night Sage, and it's a... Well, no, it's called Sounds from the Shadow Factory, um, and it's sort of uh, an adaptation of your your poem, uh, Noah. And uh, you've got all of these... Different musicians, including Ethan and Howlin' Rain, uh, backing you up. Uh, The back of your book, though, says, Immutable, he longs for Sunday morning, yet he is lost to Saturday night. I wondered if, to start off, you guys could both tell me a little bit about the kind of music you like to hear on Saturday night versus the kind of music you like to hear on (laughs) Sunday morning.
3: Uh, Sure. Do you want me to to go first? Um, Yeah, yeah. Obviously the uh, you know, the um the rift between bar music and um sacred music is uh you know it's a long tradition. But um I I actually grew up in um with a lot of religion, different different types. And so um I've played different types of sacred music. And so for me it was it was always personal that kind of war between the two. Um in the crossover, there's so much like sacred you know oh, yeah. sacred steel music i love you know but that's not that much different than like barrel house blues music when you when you when you get down to it so um just to like name drop i suppose like i mean i love gospel music i always have i, I love like people like uh Deepa, uh bahadacharya and uh all of that kind of music too. Cause I grew up with that kind of stuff too. And it, you know, so it's, to me, there hasn't always been such a dichotomy. The uh, poem is more, that part of the poem is more based on something that a preacher said to me once, which was like, <laughs> don't get caught belly up to the bar on Saturday night. And that kind of cracked me up at the time I was young and defiant. And I thought it was pretty funny. Um, but he had this, he sort of had this rant he would go on about um, Friday was the crucifixion, Sunday was, you know, the resurrection. So don't get caught on Saturday. And that's more what that piece is about more than a, a, more than like the like a real music. But to me, it's all the same music. I don't I've never had that dichotomy in, in my head. But as far as like straight sacred music, yeah, I do love lots of that stuff.
2: Sure, sure. We'll come back to this preacher guy, uh, but uh, but Ethan, how about how about for you? Is there is there any sort of um, you know when I listen to this the stuff you've done either with Howlin' Rain or the Comets on Fire stuff or you know a lot of your stuff. There's this sort of like ecstatic abandon to what I hear that that to me feels just isn't just as in line with some of the gospel stuff that I've heard as some of the the Saturday night you know party music. For you, do, do those two states sort of feel spiritually or you know however metaphysically connected in any way?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I my blood runs a little hot, you know, by by nature or whatever. So I, I like that kind of ecstatic. You know, um, you know, I've always just like that energized thing, you know. Um, usually on Saturday night, you know, on the first GNT, you know, I start, you know, very mature with some, you know, great blue note record or something like that, and and uh the jazz is flowing and all that. But you know, sometime well into the night it's (laughs) you know, the terrible sounding Zeppelin bootlegs take over and it's (laughs) you're kind of stumbling around and (laughs) stumble to bed and in the morning, um you know, uh, yeah, it's probably, uh, you know, new age records and whatnot, kind of like uh, the Keith Richards syndrome, trying to wake your liver up very slowly, you <laughs> know, kind of like time to come back to life, everybody. <laughs> I don't know about, you know, the spiritual end of it. That can come a little later when you're working in the garden or something. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. usually, usually, uh, you know, starts starts a little more uh little more mature on Saturday night ends a little more immature total fan (laughs) volume too loud. And then Sunday morning, you know, something, uh, something slightly medicinal for the first hour or two.
2: Yeah. Something, something to heal, heal your head a little bit at least. Uh, I I mean, you know, it kind of ties in with
0: Noah's cause what Noah's breaking down is basically the, you know, the essence of, of a lot of, you know, old school blues is yeah. You know, Friday night coming off, you know, coming off a hard week work that probably was seven days a week. Saturday night, you know, drinking, dancing, maybe murder. <laughs> Sunday morning, you know, you're in church praying with right. real bad breath. You know, and that's the you know that's the cycle there for the for the songs at least. How
2: how, how did you two connect uh, and and start working together on uh, for well, for this project? How did, how did you two get connected to each other
0: well we first met um i mean via phone um through doing articles because of noah's journalism music journalism so we we'd have some conversations and you know just kind of bonded that way because they quickly go into you know conversation about literature and poetry and and things creative stuff that was a little you know a little more than, uh, any, any time you start an interview in a, <laughs> on an album campaign that someone doesn't say, well, I haven't, you know, actually heard your music before <laughs> or listened to the new record yet, but it says here that this, would you like to say a couple things about it before we get off? And you okay, I'll take it. Yeah. You know, but no, we're, we're getting deep pretty quick, you know? So, um, sharing, sharing things that we love and, and teaching each other, uh, some interesting stuff along the way. That, so that, that, that was our initial basis. And then we have mutual connection through, um, Dan Cervantes, the Howl and Rain guitarist is also the label boss for blind owls that, uh, puts out Noah's material. So I, uh, maybe he can say a little more. Yeah, about and that. Dan and Dan had introduced me to Alan Forbes, uh, as
3: well, who, you know, just like Ethan, I'd been a long, long time fan of. So, um, we kind of hit it off and then Alan would kind of periodically bring up, like, Oh, you know, you've really got to meet Ethan and you've really got to talk with him and stuff. And so, um, uh, even the, even the, you know, the collaboration in general, I mean, Alan was, he was an advocate for it pretty early on. So, um, I think he deserves some of that credit as well, but yeah, definitely Dan, um, Dan, so I first met Dan playing a gig and we kind of hit it off and then uh just became friends we started working on some stuff for for the label and i had no idea that he played with Ethan at all like i didn't i didn't meet him that way so i didn't realize that he was that guy you know and then uh yeah and then when the alligator bride came out that's when uh Dan brought up maybe doing something for the band and i was like yeah i would love to talk to Ethan that'd be great and so that was kind of the door um to finally do that but if i'm being honest i've had my eye on getting to know him probably for a a long time you know what i mean like i've just been a fan of of the stuff so you know
2: what 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 was the first stuff you heard from you You know
3: know? i was trying to think about that this morning because i knew that you were going to ask me um and i remember seeing the record cover before hearing it because i had seen alan's artwork and uh, through a shirt or a poster or something. And I was like, who are these guys? And then my first thought was like, Howlin' Rain, is that like a Howlin' Wolf thing? Like, what is this all all about? And then uh, I, I remember listening to it for the first time with, with my wife in Brooklyn, like in the uh, apartment and us both being like, dude, this is great. You know, Like just like really loving it. Um, but so that would have been like, whatever record came out around... Maybe like oh eight or oh nine, I think is probably when I first heard it. So I was late to the party, you know.
2: No, not that, not that late though. That not was such that a was. that <laughs> yeah. was such that was such a cool moment uh, to to witness. I mean, for I I liked the the comet stuff first. That was oh, the first cool. stuff I heard. You know, reading about stuff like that. But right as I was getting into that stuff, you know, and reading Arthur magazine and stuff, you started doing the the Howl and Rain thing, Ethan, and it felt like there was a real. Um you know you you kind of shifted into a mode that was a little bit you know you still do lots of freakouts and stuff but there was also this whole new undercurrent of sort of like a um a little bit more well how did it feel to you what when when, when that shift started occurring did it feel like anything did you did you feel like you were moving from one thing to another or were you just kind of going along with whatever was working for you
0: Yeah I mean I I just do what I you know I just my writing just boils down to, to what I'm doing. That's why even the Hell Rain records feel a little different from one to the other, you know, you can try to kind of set out to do a certain type of thing. Um, but it kind of had, you know, Oh, I want to make a- this one be a kind of a crazy horse type record instead of a seventies pop type record or something and let some of those resonance, you know, try to endow the record with them a little bit, but, if that's not really what it wanted to be in the first place and you didn't just pick up on it, then you got to abandon that kind of forcefulness. So, sure. You know, long story short, that's just, I, I wanted a counterpoint to Comets. Comets was the sound of the five of us making music together. And it wasn't, I'm sure, within the band creatively, of course, there's little, you know, energy. You know struggles maybe not one member trying to make a certain thing happen but just one muse within a five-part you know creative democracy that's you know just creating you know a certain trajectory for a group like that and when i stepped out of that onto my own a um if i was going to do something for the time that i wasn't working on comets, then i i didn't want it to just sound like that i mean you do hear artists that do that where you're like wow they really were the writer for that group. Their new thing sounds exactly like that thing, but without the drummer and bass player or something. Right, you know? right. Um, and that just wasn't really what Comets was. And it really, I, I guess I'm a little restless for that kind of you know thing. It's just not in my nature to... Uh, you know to find stimulus and sort of like this is how I sound I'll just you know just find a billion different variations for this same little you know blueprint you know um, so for for Helen Rain it just it just was a different thing. Yeah comets kind of had pure nuclear freak out cover. You know and in a way that I felt like even I probably wasn't gonna be able to beat. <laughs> I started a new group that tested it, you know. Yeah, sure, it sure. Fairly, uh, it was fairly unbeatable, you know, in in my opinion. Um, so, you know, I didn't want to test it, and I didn't want to cover that ground. It was already living and breathing as its own entity. So, and I feel like when you listen to Hair and Oblivion or Ferrell Homes, for my part in their creative endeavors they aren't covering, you know, you hear a little bit, okay, oh, I hear a little bit Ethan in here, I hear Noel and Ethan from Commas that there is some of that, but it's, you know, we're not trying to, you know, challenge or, or cover that ground, you know, but just, you know, if, you, if you're if you doing oil paintings, you know, you, you, you do some watercolors, you do charcoal, uh, you know, pencil drawings and stuff for a reason, not because then you try to get them to look exactly like the oil paintings you've been working on instead. That's right. Yeah.
2: Noah, for you, you know, writing about music, writing poetry, working on something like this that sort of combines the spoken word and the music, do you find that these different practices allow you to get to similar places in what you're interested in? Or is it a little bit more like you can explore different terrain in each one of these uh, avenues? Um,
3: I, I think it's all ways into the same room, really. You know, I think there's like, there's an area that I'm there's a place that I'm interested in going as a, as, just as a human, you know, metaphysically, <laughs> like a consciousness that I'm interested in exploring. And so to me, they're all ways in like the music journalism thing. And I think you can probably I mean, you have so much more to add to this than me because you're, you're you've, you've done a thousand more things that, than I have with that. But the um, the thing like the thing about that is it's not really about writing. It's about, like, exploring creativity with people for me. So, like, if I get sent, like, you know, a press kit from somebody and they're asking me to cover it, like, I don't choose to or choose not to cover it based on the quality of the music or based on how good I think I I could write about it. It's just about if I hear it and I want to have a conversation about that approach. And if I don't, then I don't waste the person's time by, like... (laughs) pretending to go through it because it's not a lucrative endeavor as you know it's a thing you do for passion so it's like if I don't get that yeah, yeah. creative spark of like I want to talk about how you approach this art then I, I kind of leave it alone so in that spirit it's like it's really just about getting into this room with people like I I was excited to talk to Ethan about how he wrote those songs. Like, cause I listened to the, to the album and I heard all these references and I heard all these things going on. And I'm just thinking like, is this just, is this just like, you know, um, for poetry as, as uh, Ethan would say, where you're just, you're just pulling stuff. Right. But is it, or is this like really strategic? Like, like how are you going about some of these references? How are you? And um, so that was more the idea there, but with poetry for me, it's completely selfish. It's like, I don't, I don't think about if it's going to get read while I write it. I do edit and I do try to make it digestible. Like I'm not totally obtuse, but it's a mystic exploration for me. I'm just letting my brain go, and I'm and if people find value in that, then that's super exciting to me. But it's a selfish endeavor first. Whereas like article writing or essay writing is you know you know how that goes. Like that's all about somebody picking up what you're putting down. So.
2: Yeah, for sure, for sure. you i mean for for you guys um we can start with you noah you know uh, did was you know like um how much did literature influence the kind of music you were interested in when you kind of first started getting into all this stuff and sort of viewing it maybe in a more holistic sense where you recognized that like they weren't necessarily, they were talking about sort of, like you said, always into the same room a little bit in terms of stuff. Um, was it that, I mean, did, did literature influence your taste in music? And then was the inverse true as well? Where, where, you know, your music led you to, to interesting. Oh yeah. A hundred percent.
3: Like I can remember walking into a record store in Madison and seeing um, the, the priest, they called him with uh, Burroughs and uh, Cobain and i stupidly bought it on cd they had the vinyl i bought the cd because i was 13 and you know whatever but and i've never seen that again so if somebody has that hit me up but uh the um but yeah like that was a huge deal to me like i i remember taking that home and all my friends thinking like why would you want to hear this and i don't know why i was 13 i didn't understand what burles was talking about i was just captivated and so that was you know those things were huge, like the first time I read Charles Bukowski was because of hot water music, yeah, hot and water so, music, yeah, yeah the, the punk band, the which punk they band. were like for, like for me, they were a big band for me, like the first two albums i was I was huge into that stuff, that sort of like positive punk fugazi post fugazi world was a big thing for me in the midwest, so um. Fugazi too. I mean, there was a lot of literature that that world opened you up to. So to me, it was always hand in hand. And then when she got into old blues music and you got into folk music, it's like Woody Guthrie wrote novels, you know, so it's like it, it was all right there. And so really for me, music was the gateway. Now the inverse was true where I'd find writers and they would reference a, a band or, you know, or I'd find a, you know, something, you know, that, that went that way. But Most of the time, music led to more writers than more writers led to musicians, you
2: know? Yeah, yeah. Ethan, how about for you?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think literature is probably, you know, when it all boils down to it. Like, I'm not a really, you know, a music theory or a, you know, real trained virtuosic musician like that. So, you know, for me, I feel like that the... the, the necessity of, of characters and, and, and themes and, you know, kind of literary-esque rabbit holes and the poetry of lyrics and whatnot are the real essential part of, um, you know, music for me. I mean, of course, jazz is a whole and instrumental music is a whole different conversation about that, but for the music that I make, the way I relate to it, since I don't have, you know, that training to make that kind of jazz music, um, it's all sort of about you know a literary foundation and and i often am quite a bit more inspired in the, over the last decade or 15 years by um you know usually the literature that i have around informs the the record writing and then i just find some chords or riffs or something you know that stuff's fun okay let's just write some riffs uh, maybe you've been listening to you know george brigman or something and you're like i want this ratty kind of scuzzy riff okay cool you know let's try something like that sure um, but that's not quite as poignantly important to me as getting the right characters to send me off on a on a on a journey and and to start creating these little you know worlds for these characters to inhabit and hopefully for you know my own psyche to go in there and inhabit endow this world with some of my experiences and also be soak in some of their experiences. And, um, so yeah, I'd say it's, it's kind of everything, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Noah, uh, one of the poems in the book, uh, out of the storm drains, you talk about sort of, uh, when you write things down, I'm That's not going to quote you directly. <laughs> I'd, I'd probably accident I'd probably accidentally butcher it if I tried. Um, you talk about when you write things down, it's poetry. And then when you read things out loud, it sort of sets the, the words free a little bit and i wondered if um you know what kind what kind of freedom are you talking about there and and did did you know fronting a band and and reading this way sort of allow you to further explore what you meant by that um, line
3: yeah that's an interesting question um what i meant by it was you know i think one of the principal reasons why you write is to make sense of things and then to feel heard. Like I think often if you talk to writers, they're they're people who for whatever reason haven't felt particularly heard during their life. Right. So if you're David Lee Roth and you're on the front of this stage, you probably don't feel a whole burning desire to like write a ton down because you have an audience, you know, like hearing you, you know, so I think there's something in it where, yeah, yeah. um, Writing like painting is an interesting medium because it's not living, you know? It's like the act of doing it is a sort of a passive, like it creates a passive product that then has to be engaged with. Whereas music is is alive. It's, you know, so anytime that Ethan or I sit down and play a song, that's, that's like a living moment, you know? And that can be captured, but it's still a living moment. Whereas the actual writing the words on the page are the thing that you're producing. You're not producing on living moments. So growing up as a, a musician, um, the poem was kind of more about how I've, how the literature I fell in love with was <laughs> damn near music. Most of it, you know what I mean? Like, or even sometimes was
2: that, I mean, that's a great, that's a great point though, to the idea of saying like the literature that you were inspired by, it already felt musical. Um, Ethan, uh, at the end of uh, 2015's Mansion Songs, you do kind of a spoken a spoken word thing a little bit, where you kind of are exploring some similar territory. And there's something I was thinking about as I as I really dug into, you know, both both of this this record and the book, and and thinking back uh, about that sort of thing, is how, you know, with spoken word combined a uh, spoken word on its own, then spoken word combined with music, it's like there's a certain audaciousness to it that I just, I, I, I find myself really uh, inspired and interested in because it's the sort of thing, I mean, all, all good art requires intense commitment, you know, but you have to be willing to almost risk a certain pretentiousness to, to read <laughs> something, you know what I mean? Over, or at least and maybe not a uh, actual pretentiousness, but the perception of it for sure. You know, yeah, somebody. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, Noah and I talked about this because, I mean, we literally discussed this on the phone for a couple hours one day a while back because he was something like, you know, wondering, you know, where is that perfect point for a poet that loves music, especially rock music, to merge those two things and where... Where are successful templates that we've seen? You know, which that's a real sliding scale because you'd say, well, probably the most successful template that we've seen is, you know, I, if we're putting Bob Dylan completely over the edge into pop music and forget him as a, you know, I, I think those are those are lyrics, those are songs and choruses. You got Patty Smith that's ecstatic poetry. She gets into For that, sure, and For it sure. works. The songs, the songs hit you as as rock music hits you when you hear a Patti Smith song that's real wordy like that, it still functions with the power of rock music, but is constructed with the power of wordy poetry. It risks, you know, pretension and, and um, defied it. <laughs> but yeah. then we got, you know, other more esoteric things. You know, you could say something like the Ceiling Van song that I did, I don't know, you know, would somebody say right off the bat, does that work as rock music or did this guy go over the edge into, you know, self-involved poetry or whatever? Probably, you know, because I tried to make it overtly literary. I didn't try to make it something that sounds like, you know, that hits you with a big hook or something. Um, I wanted the words to, you know, spill out. Um, and, uh, from there you get, you know, things like Shadow Ring, you know, that are more obtuse, you know, poetry, maybe even poetry concrete kind of stuff in music and, and experimental. you know, you start getting experimental music, experimental poetry, and those things can be really successful. But again, only 80 people on earth like it, you know, and, and those 80 people are like, oh, there's nothing more incredible than this. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So where you know the, the question is, it's it's a really interesting. I mean, where we ended up in our conversation when talking about how to make something that succeeds with elevated literary poetic um, intent and delivers, uh, you know, on a semi-populist rock and roll, you know, level where you get that hook, that gut feeling, you know, basically the successful Patty Smith, you know, version. Sure. Um, there isn't a lot of it. It's it's a risky, slippery slope. And I think what you said, you risk retention, you even, you know, you risk failure even, even more, you know,
2: which is, of course, great when that happens. So you, I mean, risking failure is, you know, I mean, it's what's what it's what you, you got to do sometimes to get someplace, I think, you know, obviously. Yeah, now that now that said, I mean, I definitely think that it's such an interesting thing because, like, you think about someone like Leonard Cohen, you know, and like that can function like poetry, and 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 I've read Leonard Cohen stuff as poetry, and then, you know, heard it interpreted poetry. musically, you know. But then you think, then you think about someone like Lou Reed, you know, and his big ambition, you know, his sort of stated ambition was like he wanted to imbue rock and roll with the Delmore Schwartz, Hubert Selby kind of like. Uh, Yeah, that lyricism the lyricism and the literary you know quality and he wasn't above speaking parts like it was an old doo-wop song you know what i mean so i think that like i find myself really interested with the two of you guys on a on a chat thinking about like um when you sing lyrics you know the rhythm the the inflection of your voice it's like you're 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 using the same tools you know when you're when you're reading or when you're you're singing potentially and i just wondered you know where the where the sort of line is if there and and, and if you if you if you have any sense of it like you feel when you're crossing yeah, it you I know think what i that,
3: mean so i think yeah uh, <sighs> patty smith is, is the, absolutely the prime example of someone who's done it right i think like when you get into like Tom Waits and you get into like Nick Cave and folks like that who are in tremendous writing talents, it's, it's a slightly different, like they're on a slightly different bend. But um, for me, the, the, the big difference is like what the intent is behind it. Like, I mean, obviously like you can comb through Instagram and find like all kinds of spoken word people. And um, even like you guys just, uh, you guys just had some record on the, website that had some, um, spoken words.
2: Oh, or the, yeah. the psychedelic was, sangha, the, uh, the Eric Davis yeah, which meditation. I had never heard yeah.
3: until two days ago when you guys posted it and it was great. I, I listened to it. It was super cool. Um, but the thing is, is like some of it is just based in intention. So like I sat down to write a book and I wrote a book and that came out and then mm-hmm. because it came out on a record label, there, certain doors, certain doors were open. Um, but those are doors I've been kind of kicking around for, for, you know, for years. I put out solo records and stuff too, that had seven minute folk songs on them that had no chorus. So it's like, this isn't, it's not, and it's not unheard of in that sense of like, Woody Guthrie, you know, I went down to the fishing hole, I grabbed myself fishing, you know, it's like all of that stuff. It's not unheard of. Talking blues is, um, Alice's sure. Restaurant, things like that, right? I mean, it has a chorus, but it's not unheard of. I think that for me, the intent, more than being a spoken word record or a spoken word artist or anything like that, the intent was to explore collaborating on something with people that I really like. And that was like, that was as far, as far ahead as I thought about it. And then um, just because of who those folks are and the effort they've put in and kind of what they've added to it it's become it'd be, it's become more serious than I first in, that I first thought it would be you know so I hadn't as far as pretension and all that I hadn't really considered any of that I just thought like I like the poem sounds kind of cool with this music let's throw it out there you know it was real it was a real um, yeah it was not real thought out intuitive <laughs> yeah
2: yeah, yeah, it, so- it, so- it sounds—it like you're talking about just an intuitive feeling of like let's let's see what happens when when we when we do this. Do you, do you feel like, um, you know, I think about somebody like uh, you know, Robert Hunter who who wrote words, you know, or John Perry Barlow for that matter, you know, two of the Grateful Dead's lyricists, you know, who wrote words and then handed those over to the guys to. To turn them into songs, you know have have either of you ever employed that that uh approach where you you've written words for for a friend's tune or anything like that?
3: not formally, I mean, like I have friends who have been like, Hey, you should change this lyric or something, but not yeah not not <laughs> yeah, formally sure, that's sure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah that's 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 yeah. helpful editing, yeah. yeah, freelance editing that's a good and idea it's, and
3: it's not always welcome
0: <laughs> I, that, <you> know. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Yeah, that is such a, a um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like that there's almost like a purity to that form of art. Like it maybe it was something when I first started like writing music that I did and could have done, like written fully formed lyrics that had, that that could, you know, inspire a song to just be put to them. But uh, somehow that seems like such a complex use of the imagination now to me these years on, I don't know why, but yeah, I think about those Robert hunters and Bernie Taupins and people that sit down at a typewriter and then crank out something and some brilliant, um, you know, some brilliant music writer can just hear the, the whole universe in, in the beat of those, those black, you know, typewriter letters on the page. And, um yeah that's yeah, you, an incredible thing because it's not just you know those guys aren't just turning in poetry they're just turning in you know every uh, in my opinion because i said the liter- literature was everything and everything else is just chord sequence so they're turning <laughs> everything to these guys and then jerry just goes oh i like these scales and i want to do a minor song you know yeah
2: so. i think i think about how when I was kind of younger, you know, I was actually some of the first records I got from my dad's record collection were his Elton John records. And like, I remember looking at the back and being like, words by Bernie Taupin. Like, how did Elton Because jo- you listen to some of those records and Elton will fit in insane lyrics. Lyrics that like just seem so impossible to, to make work in a sort of musical sense. And that's when I realized, to your point, that like Taupin was turning in like a thing that was already... Perfect collaboration, like an like an art, a piece of art, and saying now you can do whatever you need to do with it. You know that's such a, I don't know. That is, I think you're right. There's a purity to that, and, uh, but I think that there's a purity to what you guys are doing too, where it's like these two sort of a wild combination, like Arthur Russell might say, which is to say, you know, when you're when you're backing somebody up who's doing spoken word, Ethan. I mean successful collaboration really requires empathy and listening you know so are you sort of like getting in the the headspace that the that the 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 words inspire uh, or is it a little bit different than that what's it like
0: well yes if I were in the room let's not to not to pull the curtain back on on you know what happens behind the the, the, the uh, for sure boom that Oz runs, the Oz you runs know? deep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No. Totally.
0: But, but these
2: these were uh,
0: the Hall and Rain one for this was put together. Dan Dan mixed this together. Took the Hall and Rain music and mixed it together with um, Noah's spoken word performance. So the production was on their end, and it was actually. I mean, it still works with the empathetic ear because Dan is a yeah, member of, of Howl and Rain, and he understands Noah's. The, the essence of his poetry so well that that he was the one that used the empathetic ear to to you know to to put that piece together um so yes normally you know if we were all in the room together we would do that um that's exactly right yeah it's just like improvising there's more weight on it because you know instead of just having a saxophone player come sit in and saying well when you You know, when you take a solo, we, you know, let Mr. Sax, you know, have a little more room. This is a celebration of a poet's words and a celebration of the the character and the narrator. And in this case, you know, you don't, you know, you are not just improvising musically and opening up a little space here and there for someone to solo. You're creating a, you know, foundational platform like a, you know, something in a parade that you know you're gonna see all this stuff and there's a lot of action different things to look at but this person is going to be up there that character is up there in the big you know headdress and you're carrying them all the way through the parade there and stuff so yeah um it does take a different you know once again the whole the, the rules seem like they just cross over for you know for this spoken word and music collaboration from Eh, well, we mix it, this is where the vocals go, you know, even on a mixing level, you know, I talked to Dan, I said, Dan, this isn't as easy as mixing vocals into rock music. You can't, you know, you can, you miss Mick Jagger. I mean, you can barely understand any words Mick Jagger says in a 1960s right. record, and it still <laughs> hits just, you know, you're like, do you have any idea what the lyrics are at Jumpin' Jack and Glass? No, but it's like one of my favorite, some of my favorite, you know, vocals or lyrics, and that's not going to fly in the, right. in the poetry collaboration. It's It's like a very tricky line. So, um, you know, the credit there, you know, my, my uh, credit gets, you know, for playing guitar and bringing my uh, (laughs) energies to Alan Rain and, and appreciating and and celebrating Noah's work. But, you know, the real credit, you know, musically, I think Noah, maybe you were with Dan in constructing these on a production level and stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think he gets a lot of the credit for how that, collaboration sounds you know production wise and how it was joined Because yeah is, is i that actually
3: uh, from my end dan gets all the credit um i didn't i really did nothing okay. <laughs> I, it, no i mean you know dan um my understanding was you know dan got the idea to because he had this mm-hmm. um he had this piece of music from i guess it was from a jam or like a rehearsal right and so he had this piece of music and he he had called me a couple times like, Hey, I think this would be really good. I think this would be really good. And I was like, I sort of, um, maybe with my own apprehensions about spoken word and whatever, because, because the other recordings we did in, in the studio, like with those other musicians. So we actually like, they did respond in real time to stuff. And, um, and, uh, we did ones that didn't work as well too. Like I have other recordings that aren't going to come out, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, it, it's just part of the process of sure. just kind of messing with stuff. But Dan really felt passionate about this piece of music. And, um, so I did a few reads over it and then finally got one that was kind of working, um, from home. And then he, yeah, he, he went in and added layers and, uh, he got, um, Pat from Garcia peoples and a few other people to kind of join in. And, um, it just became something, you know, and, uh, like the production on it was really um i think all the pieces were cool but yeah i would definitely give dan credit for pulling those into something that's uh listenable as an end product yeah it's
2: cohesive yeah it, yeah
0: in some ways it it like yeah when you said oh we did other you know things in the studio with other musicians but in some instances that was ha- more difficult and i was thinking about that because you know when you improvise or when you record or collaborate with people musically you're trying to listen to every note that every player is playing and if you're really in it you can hear the whole thing but each of those notes is hitting you on a visceral level and then passing by and you're getting the next note the whole goddamn way that poetry works is that you know the res- you know the, the m- different meanings and different things unfurl in the resonance after the moment, you know, that he, yeah. there's some poetry that works, you know, like Bukowski or something on a visceral level, word for word, you're kind of just getting punched with something and then it's gone. But the whole point of poetry is, you know, read and then it just keeps going. So that makes live, um, you know, live collaboration when you're trying to deal in, you know, counteractive resonance and stuff like yeah. very tricky. Yeah, yeah. you know, because you're 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 in the moment in there when the tape's rolling, and it's and, and now you have an artist who deals in resonance and imagery, repercussion, and different things that you know you kind sure. of as a musician better not be thinking about. Two minutes ago and having it occur to you that what happened two minutes ago might have better been served with this other thing, you know. I mean,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: It's yeah, that's a very I don't know, another yeah. one for our <laughs> book of how to join poetry <laughs> and music together and how goddamn tricky it is. And yeah, how
2: uh,
3: people will like it when yeah. it's done anyways. <laughs> no, it is really it's a really tricky thing though. I mean, it's like it, you know, it it's been it's been a question in my head for most of my life is like, you know, how can, because you're going to fall further on one side of the of the fence or the other, you're either going to be like, you know, the poetic songster, Woody Guthrie style person, or you're going to end up being, you know, uh, a poet, a poet ginsberg who happens to do some recordings you know what i mean so like you're gonna you're gonna fall on one side or the other and i you know i mean there's examples you know kendrick homar is a a fantastic writer and manages to to put out music and i'm convinced that guy could just write books if he wanted to i mean you know i mean he's
2: well yeah i mean absolutely
3: there's you know it but but you're gonna fall on one side of that line and it's hard it's it it's it's hard when you're so passionate about both of those to kind of reconcile them but um i think that particular track and the way you know uh the way it came together created something that we would have never been able to make in the studio all at the same time um yeah just because of what <laughs> of what tangential mystic rabbit holes we would have all went down probably if we were sitting there in the room together you know
2: yeah well that sounds like maybe the next the next step the next collaboration someday when we can be in the same rooms as each other Noah, you you mentioned uh you know the, the sort of like this this conversation that you'd had with the preacher and then in the in the book there's this thread of you know i think blue collar mysticism is the is the term that you you use what 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 was your religious background like uh you know growing up you you mentioned being exposed to a lot of different uh, spiritual yeah, practices yeah
3: well the um, cliff notes on it is that my folks got into the krishna consciousness uh kind of boom of the seventies. And so, um, you know, there's Catholicism in my family. There was, uh, uh, there was kind of non-denominational Christianity in my family. There was Krishna. There was um, kind of a lot of Buddhist philosophy. And these were things that even though they came in and out of my childhood, they, uh, they became references that were often, you know, kind of touched on. So, you know, so my mom is really, she's a seeker. Like that's like, she's just is somebody like, um, I just checked my email be you know, before this call and uh, she had sent me a thing about psilocybin therapy. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's like, she's just, she's constantly, she's just on that trip of just constantly seeking, constantly exploring and um, always really had a mind for, how did these things fit together rather than, you know, what makes these things different? So I was kind of raised with that idea. And so, you know, um, there was things from Krishna consciousness, you know, Hari Krishna stuff that, you know, would come up. There was kind of Buddhist teaching that would come up and all the while we were sort of going to a a Christian, um, non-denominational style church, uh, churches, several different ones, but, um, sort of rubbing up against that because the world was a lot bigger than that for me. You know, it wasn't that, um, I had yeah. these other experiences that i had kind of pulled from. So, um, that's kind of the short answer of that, I mean, that in itself could be a whole two hour conversation.
2: Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. How, how about you, Ethan? I'm, I'm curious. Have you ever, I mean, has, has Ethan Miller dabbled in religion much?
0: no, <laughs> um, not really I was raised uh, agnostic and I I went to church a little bit as a kid because you know if I stayed over on Saturday night at some friend's house and they they had to go to church the next day and I had to go also then I would um, and for a minute you know I got into a couple of uh, you know su- Sunday school or you know kind of fun things when you're like 10 years old or something and then again a little bit like, I, I did like, um, you know, I like I the community there and stuff. I mean, I think that's a big part of, you know, after the spiritual search, which burns so deep in some people. And I think for the majority of people that are involved in religions and churches, it's a community and a, and a family. And and once you're in it, um, like Noah said, eh, go to the non-denominational um, Christian church and my world, you know, it was a lot bigger, but also this is a great community, a great place. There's more than just the teachings of what you are and who you are there, you know, that you receive. And I kind of like that, but um, I guess not enough uh, for me to really stay and maybe more importantly, vice versa. Like I think most of them just got that I wasn't you know, that they're like, this guy's not he's not cut out for for churchy, you know, it's just like he's not a believer. I think we sure. got this kid on our hands here. Like, hey, you're taking up room there, Christian. Get out, well you know, so uh, I don't know. It wasn't, you know, there was nothing or anything bad about it, but I just kind of yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't fit in there and um and and, and I just you know, I, I had other other places that uh my you know my own type of spiritual search and um you know my community and and those kinds of things they just developed in other places so i feel like without you know without the upbringing um just you know different different outlets took over that kind of focus well i think too it's
3: like you know like you're talking to I mean, band guys. So it's notorious for being bad at team sports. You know what I mean? And that's so much of that. um, That's why we all join bands because that's that's a team that we can relate to, you know? And so it's like
0: you got yeah. communities, churches, your spiritual, religious, your worship of the music. It's all, you know, it's all just kind of, you know. Well, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, and that's something else. I feel like, you know, both of you are, Ethan, you at, you know, uh, at a different. In the, you know, in the in the last decade, you signed to like a major label and you had a run with uh, with Rick Rubin's American Recordings. But most of your stuff has been on smaller labels or independent labels, you know. And now you're obviously, you have this thriving DIY label, you know. But it seems to me like both of you, maybe that community thing and the thing that people find in churches or in religion, you know. It seems like the DIY art life, you know, sort of just that's where that energy was channeled for, for the both of you. Does that sound about fair?
3: Yeah, I mean, I was a card-carrying, DIY, Ian Mackay fan club kid, you know what I mean, for sure. I mean, that... that that Yeah, yeah. When, when a friend's older brother gave me a copy of a Fugazi record when I was 13, like, that was... The, like, the whole path was different after that because everything became possible, you know? And I was lucky to be in the Midwest where the DIY scene was it, super robust for many years until kind of hardcore came in and, and then Napster and all the rest of it and things changed, you know, but um like it was a good, you know, it, that foundation. And there's a big thread of that in the book, this idea of like DIY spirituality where like, for me, like the organization around these ideas was never as captivating as like the monastic sort of bend of them, which I was always very captivated by, you know? Um, so that was more, uh, if you can put out your own record, you know, you can read these books yourself. You can come up with your own ideas about them. Like that, like that was all very attractive to me. So I would say, yeah, hundred percent, you know, um,
2: How about you, Ethan? I mean, DIY community, did you find, I mean, when you got involved in in scenes and stuff, did you, did you feel like you were being initiated into something?
0: Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, some, there was something, I mean, I, there was something I wanted to be initiated into because I, when I was getting into it, you know, when I was, first saw like the local punk scene or something, you know, in late junior high and especially in early high school, most of these people were there and beyond. And when I started going to the shows, you're seeing, you know, 14 year olds to 45 year olds in a type of culture, especially growing up in a small town pre-internet. Um, but the, you know, boom in Berkeley with Gilman street and that stuff was happening and, and punk was, you know, on that level was really going and those shows were coming up to our small town. You get an eyeful from being in a small, you know, town behind the Redwood curtain, an explosion of culture and personalities and ethos that, um you know just it's it's overwhelming so yeah i wanted to get into that and 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 feel that freedom and whatnot um but were they initiating me in i don't know you know it's hard to say when you're you you know you're young and you look up they're already in bands they're on stage you see what they're doing you want to be like how do i get to that level that is some next level shit you know especially that guy there that gal there on stage you know Mm -hmm. um you know I i think that the Dark side to any of this stuff, the thing that's not mentioned, you know, that that I don't like about organized religion um, or – and this goes for any kind of community this happens to – is, you know, the dogma, the control factors, the, the, you know, the lines of right and wrong is put down by someone that has their own incentive and their Mm -hmm. own personal gain to create those structures and then have other people – work within those structures, and obviously, you know, religion gets dangerous quickly and gets massively controlling to the masses very quickly for very few people's gain, and it has always been that way. And I'm not saying that, you know, the spiritual quest is um, the same as that kind of corrupt misuse, Um, but no matter what community you look to, you know, I mean, the real core of the issue is – learning to think for yourself and then learning to act upon the thoughts that you've, you know, really worked through for yourself.
2: Yeah. And
0: whether that's art or religion or, you know, what you end up having to, you know, deal with in your music scene or your church, um, you know, those are, those are ups and downs and I still feel those conflicts in, um, you know, I mean, I'm old enough and been doing it long enough that you, feel the pressure of those things less and less as you get older and, and keep you know grinding your own path more and more
2: yeah but, just just by nature of having done it and and you're just you don't care as much probably you know you're not looking for anybody else's acceptance at this you'll
0: point see people over and over then not just you know encountering it for the first time or oh here this comes again but decade after decade and then lifelong people trying to lay down new rules and the ways things should be, or this is acceptable. This isn't even right down to, you know, this kind of music is good. This kind of music isn't bad. Isn't good. You know, or this way to make music is good. This is a digital is bad. Analog <laughs> is good. That's it. you know. No disease. Right. There's no black and white in, in, you know, life. That's where your, your danger flags go up, you know? So, um, yeah, both, both things. It's a yin and yang of, of positive, you know, without community it's, you know, you starve creatively on your own. I feel like it's hard, you know, that, that you, when you do have community you're encouraged and, and endowed with, you know, endowed with, uh, you know, just magic beyond your own imagination and ability and whatnot, you know, and saying, you know, I think that's where that church thing comes in too. You're no longer out there doing it alone in the jungle. You know, you are, you know, you are 20 people strong trying to build a, you know. Yeah. A structure, yeah. You well, know? And I think
3: it's worth noting yeah. too. I mean, like the DIY world or that scene, you know, I mean, each city had its own experience with that, but, um, I felt prey to same bunch of the same dogma stuff where you know you you're you're too professional or you're too this or you're whatever you know like and this band's this band's really diy this band's not you know and it's like and so it's like it that that dogmatic hierarchy seems to be seems to be um unavoidable in so many of these worlds worlds you know but kind of to take it back to the to the to the collab in the track and stuff. I mean, that one of the central themes of the whole thing is this, is the sage character looking for his place, you know, because of his, Mm -hmm. his ideas and his experiences, he doesn't have a community. And so, you know, um, one of the great things that Blind Owl and Dan and Ethan and Alan and some of these people have afforded me is an artistic, you know, community, something that in my adult life, you know, has been building, obviously it's not like it just started with this (laughs) record, but, you know, these are all fellow travelers on the path. And so I think that, Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, that's one of the most important, things as an artist it's it's just to have somebody you can text and call and share work with and like work on stuff with like hey did you did you hear this song you know it's like that's i mean right that's because we're all fans and we're all just still 13 year old kids who are just like dude this is blowing my mind you know it's like so we're all still that you know that kid so um
2: I always, I always resented the, the suggestion that as you, as you aged, that sense of wonder was something that, uh, you know, leaves, you know, that was always, that's something you always hear, I think kind of growing up is that like, as you get older, you know, you're not going to want to hear new music. You're not going to want to experience new art. You're not going to want to get too many new ideas because you, you figured something out, but <laughs> it hasn't happened for me yet. It doesn't sound like it's happened no, for either of you you know?
3: floored by art. No, then then i did it 15 Me too. like
0: uh, yeah it's tra- it's tragic when you hear people say that or i mean yeah i don't know how could you how could you possibly you know say that with any conviction that there's you know nothing new under the sun i mean it, the the last year in pandemic the amount of incredible new art and music that came out against all odds was probably so much higher and in such greater value than the amount of actually manufactured American goods in this country so
2: yeah and 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 that's actually something that I wanted to to, to touch on just a tiny bit is because the idea is that um you know you guys are you guys are two artists who draw from the radical and the countercultural uh ideas of the past and are applying them in a modern context um and, and something that's really been on my mind is that when we look at an age of you know climate dread and an age of uh pandemics and uh old economic and political systems sort of uh, eroding before our eyes. Um, You know, looking ahead, which can be tough to do, and I think, at least for me, scary to do, Um, what do you guys see the counterculture as you define it, however you define it, needing to look like as we sort of move into this new, even weirder age? (laughs)
1: That, <laughs> no go ahead <laughs> Take it away. I, was you.
3: I was really Thanks hoping guys. you were going to jump in <laughs> on that one um, uh, and I you know to, not to be hippy dippy about it but if I have to if I have to try to formulate an answer for that I think empathy is is the pillar of counterculture so the way that I experienced it growing up um you know, for the sake of the point, I guess, like punk was a safe space when I found punk. It was, a you know, you didn't you didn't have to go to a punk show and worry about getting beat up where where I was, you know. Um, and so, I mean, this isn't you know, this is obviously like this is whatever post-punk emo, whatever that world was. But the uh, late 90s. Right. Kind of punk scene for a teenager. Um So empathy was the thing, you know, and I'd go down to the Fireside Bowl in Chicago and they'd have, there'd be booths about, you know, anti-racist action. There would be booths about, you know, PETA. There'd be booths about stopping the deforestation of of South Um, America to grow cattle. There would be, you know, stuff that now is like, they're not radical ideas. People are going like, oh yeah, okay, you know. I mean, that was '97 or something. So it was radical.
2: Yeah, depends on well, who sure. you talk to. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of people who.
3: <laughs> but but no, I, I your point so is well for taken. For me, it was always it was always a safe space that opened the door for empathy. And art to me was an open door to empathy as well. So um, I was completely captivated by John Lee Hooker, or by Bob Dylan, by you know. Uh, and then all the punk music too, which I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but the, just all, all this stuff, you know, like, I could spend the next 10 minutes listing, listing artists, but you know what I mean? The, but the point is like, it was always about empathy and religion was about empathy to me. I, I, I never, I never had that um experience with this super legalistic. Well, I mean, I had experiences with that. I should take that back. I had plenty of experiences with super legalistic religion but that was never the world that i was operating in like i didn't that's not how i read the book so to me the counterculture as far as where we're at the counterculture is empathy and it doesn't and it's regardless of who's president or who's you know who's this or that because we can always choose that in every situation and it's always going to be counter because it's counter a certain threat of human nature to operate with empathy first um And uh, that's my answer. I'm sticking to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good. I mean, the idea of you know, also as humans. I mean, one question that we have, like as we go forward, the the issue that when we are all together, the way that we move as a mass in inertia is not in our best interests and it's not in the earth's best interests. And those are the two things that we have here inside of our life and world. And we don't know if, you know, we can turn back the problems that we've created through our inertia in our, you know, oneness, even though we're not, you know, consciously one, we are one moving in a terrible direction, you know, that we've all, you know, whatever it is, just, We've all used a few too many plastic water jugs. We've all clicked on Amazon one too many times. We've all, you know, sold missiles to the wrong people over there in this little place where they're now pointing them back at our friends over there and they're pointing back at us and, and on and on mm-hmm. as the ice cap melts and, and, and um, all our other problems. We don't know the outcome of those things. Um, but, you know, I think counterculture it is its purpose, is you know, in its best and and with empathy, it doesn't have to necessarily you know judge and try to tear down and you know pull out and lynch the the, the worst offenders or the mass offenders of a certain um, of a certain inertia that's that's at the middle of of the movement of our culture, mm-hmm. um, but should certainly raise the questions and hold up the mirrors. And those mirrors are going to hit the sun, right? And burn our eyes and faces. And some of them have, you know, the question of um, global warming for a lot of people, even if a lot of people still deny it for their own purposes, a lot of other people that may have said, I don't know how it affects me and I don't really care. You know, they felt the burn of, of the reflection of that mirror and they see it now. And, and you know, there is a change in, in mass, um, you know, mass conception about certain issues. Um, And it doesn't even have to be that huge. I think that the counterculture is, you know, essential to just keep actual culture culture thriving because culture isn't, you know, a one click and next day delivery and culture isn't, um, you know, setting up new uh, Trump hotels on top of the Arctic and wiping out the icebergs so we can do it, so we can have a you know cool vacation up there or whatever, and get great Wi-Fi. Right. Um, you know, the cult- culture comes from counterculture. You know that the the art in our culture, the architecture, all these things come from somebody having a new idea against the norm, and you know it may be absorbed at some point. So um, I agree with Noah. I am of the type that. You know, rather than um, being a full, you know, burn it to the ground, you know, let's go, uh, you know, let's go drag them out in the street radical um, that I like, you know, that to me, to my personality type, the empathetic, um, you know, effort you know, I like it. I don't mind if, you know, people are are, are psychically hurt or uncomfortable with the, the power of of the projection from counterculture. But um, I know all aspects of counterculture are probably positive because our culture culture gets eroded by the day. And,
2: you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, 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 I find myself thinking a lot about that 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 radicalism that you're talking about, and the kind of radicalism that's required for new ideas, you know. And I think about how how much of the counterculture we've seen reflect the regular culture right back and into on, onto itself, you know, and sort of like an overlay. They end up falling into the same ideas, and yet so many radical and interesting and forward moving things have also come out of these these cultures. And so I think it's just all about sort of like the 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 self awareness that it requires to 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 think critically about art and then also the lack of that that it requires just to create you know what i mean like it's it's such a tense it's it's a, it's a tense it's a tense thing but but this is where my brain went thinking about your guys's uh collaboration <laughs> I mean,
3: yeah i think if you're getting into like political activism and stuff i mean that's that's a different conversation that i don't feel particularly um informed enough to go throwing around blanket statements about, but um, you know, for as far as just, you know, operating in a way that's counter, you know, like it's just thinking about like I, as a human being, I, I want to operate in a way that's counter it through throughout nearly all of history. The idea of, operating with empathy first has been counter. I mean, it, you know, I mean that's, you know, mm-hmm. there's very old texts, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, like it's been so I think to me that, you know, to me that's um you know, doing the opposite thing the same way it doesn't constitute, you know, a counter culture to me, but I do agree that I do agree that sure. um all culture is general you know what I mean? It, it's generally counter because that's where stuff's coming from. Everything's going to start somewhere. You know, everything's going to start with a small group mm-hmm. of people getting into a certain type of painting or a certain type of writing or, you know, anything like that. And then it spreads, you know? Um, so there's always counterculture. And in these days, it feels like anything that's not corporate feels counter. You know, and so, if you work at a startup or if you're <laughs> if you're running a record label or if you're doing a podcast, like anything that's not corporatized feels counter right now and for the most part, yeah. it probably is you know uh maybe in some cases it isn't i mean who can t- i mean who can absorb everything but uh you know it, there's noble work to be done, i think in the arts, and I think that yeah. um The less money art makes, the harder it is for there to be new art. And I think that we're up against all that stuff. I mean, at some point, I could write more books if I didn't have a a, a day job, right? So there's a math equation. but you you got to (laughs) eat. But you also don't write a book of poetry because you think it's going to make money. You know what I mean? So it's like there's, you know, so... That's right. You have to have realistic expectations. But I think even in that, like just choosing to make a piece of art that you like is an empathetic act. It's, it's showing empathy to yourself. It's giving yourself that space to just create and not worry about it. If spoken word is pretentious, you know what I mean? Like you just put it out and, um, you know, and that's something I think everyone involved in this project inspired me to do more. I mean, Alan, Alan draws every day. And if you actually mm-hmm. keep up with them on what's every day.
1: All, all day, day,
3: every, every, day. day. Yeah, that's true. every day. He draws <laughs> all all day, every day. He draws all day, every day, and sleeps
1: yeah. every three days. And,
3: it's, <laughs> and if you keep up with them on Instagram or on uh, or just on the phone, it's it's. I mean, he, you know, to his credit, he called. He's called me probably a dozen times during this last year, and just told me like, "Hey, you got to just make something every day." Like he's called me just to just to encourage me to keep making things. You know, and it's like,
2: yeah, yeah,
3: that's, that's counterculture to me, you know, like that's, you know, there's, that's great. Like, that's what it's all about. And so I guess, I mean, that's kind of, for me, um, that's like the hallmark of what really matters.
0: Yeah, we're all talking about creative counterculture. I mean, I suppose there's, which is that, that's what I was talking about too, is the, 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 people looking at the world around them and then being th- deeply thoughtful about it and then being creative about it in a response that's meant to you know challenge structures that that are you know formed by negative inertia
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know and, and i think that's what Noah's is saying i guess there's a you can get into a whole other world of negative countercultures and positive creative counterculture i mean. To me, yeah, creativity is at the heart of that whole conversation, not just, you know, getting a gang of people together to throw a Molotov cocktail at something, you know, blindly. You know, follow come, throw it there.
2: Yeah. You're, yeah, and I mean, you're talking, I mean, as, as a guy who who puts out music independently, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm aware that, I mean, you have listeners and you have listeners who love your records, but you're not talking about putting out, you know, uh, top 40 records you know and so I think about the approach you know the sort of freeing yourself from the constraints of what would constitute uh commercial success you know I mean requires other stuff it requires working day jobs it requires working you know other you know f- feeding feeding yourself and your family another another way maybe you know but but I do think that you guys are right that you're talking about the the countercultural drive is like at the, at the heart of, of what making art is, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to turn that into a question. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, that's true.
3: You, there's, there's a good chance you have a better answer yeah, for this. That's true, We do. Yeah. So. <laughs> You've been thinking about it more for sure. I mean, you know, but I do think it's interesting because to me, like if I put my music journalist hat on for a second, like alligator bride, to my ear was the most commercially viable record probably i thought it was just like <laughs> i thought the hooks were i just i was floored when i heard it so, <laughs> you know it's so, so hooky record yeah, man it's, it's like, great i get those guitar lines stuck in my head even after two or three months of not hearing the record so to me it's it's you know it, it, the commercially viable piece of all this is it's such a it's such an abstraction from the creative part and like, I mean, I've had copywriting jobs and stuff. So it's like, I've, I've seen behind some of that curtain more than I ever had hoped to, but um, it's, you know, the machine, that machine, you know, there's a lot of machines in our world and that particular one runs on a certain type of fuel, you know? And so if you, decide to create with an alternative fuel method, then you're just not going to like, you're not going to function right in that machine. And that's maybe that's the, that's the choice, but like, you know, who wouldn't like to have more people here, listen to read, you know, their, their work also. So it's like, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a weird rub, but I definitely think that record like to me that one could have been Greenwit all the way to MTV if that was still uh, a thing. <laughs>
0: I need a 100,000 more yeah. just like you know. <laughs>
3: that's it. I'm serious. I mean I, I really though like that record for me was like Well, I was like dude, this is like I I was so happy when I heard it the first time. I was like man, this is it's just it was so catchy, but it was
2: Yeah, I mean I, I completely agree. To your point though, Noah, you, you kinda you kinda you kinda said it. You know, you were like uh if MTV was still a thing, this should be all over M T V. It's like, yeah, but what you know, what is what is consensus culture? Where are people gonna hear uh, yeah. new 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 awesome Howl Rain records because you you know, uh in a just world, classic rock stations would be playing new artists too. You know what I mean? Like uh Right it from Ze- Zeppelin into the stones into the, the new Heron Oblivion or whatever, you know? So it's like in, in, in my brain, that's the way it would work. But clearly,
0: yeah, I think I think that, yeah, all those I think what, what Noah said, uh, you know, about the machine and, the, and money. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying those in a, in a totally negative way, because if you sure. want to engage the machine and you have the money, um, then, you know, we can go for it. And even I do have a few friends or acquaintances that did, that were back in the primo late eighties MTV era, when you get a video on there and it breaks and it might, and that in the whole world changes, you're playing arenas, you know, two months later or whatever it's on, you know, and you've got three year cycle now to nail it off the first video, the second video and the power ballad and it's triple platinum, (laughs) you know, and, and, but none of those stories revolved around like, I don't know, we just sent it in and somebody saw it. They'd never heard of us before. You know, it, it, back then it too it was like, right. we're going to have to budget for this. It's going <laughs> to work and we're going to use a little crowbar on some of these guys. And same with the <laughs> classic radio stations. Now, I mean, FM and radio is not the same, but you had to put in a lot of money and a lot of influence and you know, in some cases, a lot of payoff to get those songs played on the radio and then to keep them played and then to make them catch fire. So you know, yeah, it, the, the pro- one of the problems with that is that it creates a lot of waste because, you know, the old paradigm that one out of every, you know thousand or, or two hundred, you know, even a great record that you try to make work with all that money it's all for not because it still just won't click or somebody finally just says, Nope, I'm not doing this. I got my other artists. I got paid more payroll to, <laughs> you know, get this one on this. So,
2: well, sure, sure. And for that matter, that record might get discovered 25 years down the line, but I mean, yeah, yeah. what you're saying is exactly right.
0: I mean the real key I think for where I'm at doing it is um, like Noah said, you know, when he put on the record, And he was like, man, I just felt warm and thrilled. It was exactly what I wanted to hear. Or even if it it grows on you and you're like, I was surprised, but I came to love it. Or, you know, just that engagement, um, you know, on some level that's like, okay, I was, you know, I was interested, I engaged with it, and now it means something to me. And I'm glad it exists. I'm glad this person did it. And, uh, you know, that's number one. And then the money that you have to worry about is simply just you know can we make back manufacturing costs thanks to Bandcamp and that kind of stuff yes you can you know for the ten or two thousand dollars it takes to make a record um you know at least on my level with the pre-sales and the you know distribution sales and stuff it'll come back and there'll be a little left over Mm -hmm. um you know yeah do you are you you know then yeah things will have to run away a little bit if we're going to sell You know, 30, 40, 50,000 records or something. Those are big sales. Even major labels are trying to start with a nice, tasty 50,000 record sale mark and, like, hey, we've got it. The next one, we can start pumping all that money into it. But that's right. The the targets for your average, unheard of new artist for a major label or for Silver Current might not be that different if either of us think we have a hot one, you know? So, yeah. Times have changed too, you know?
2: But what you said earlier about how, you know, over the last year, <clears throat> I think everybody has started to to ask themselves, well, not everybody, but a lot of us have started to ask ourselves, you know, some serious questions about this stuff. Because in 2020, you know, music helped save my my brain, you know? I mean, everybody I know feels that way. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, yeah and great and great new music came out you know and we're gonna see i mean the records we're gonna see this year like uh you know with people you know whatever working their way making art through this in this 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 like unhinged and completely unconceived we don't have the frames of reference you know so i think we're gonna hear art that's like so truly far out and so interesting and um I think that what a lot of people started realizing was as they found themselves like either drawn back to their favorite records, the records that made them feel okay, or we're under, you know, on, you know, uncovering brand new and exciting stuff. I think people are starting to ask us, you know, we're starting to ask more regularly is, is, are there sustainable paths for these people to get this stuff to us? Are there equitable paths, you know? equitable deals that we can strike with the people who make the things that we that we care about you know so i feel like that's like that's me being uh, you know super optimistic that people feel like that's an important thing but i certainly feel like it's become even more uh uh, you know, tangible, how how sort of frayed some of the, the old distribution systems are and uh, and how we all got to kind of work together if we want this stuff to, to keep existing, yeah, you know? I think
3: it's, yeah. you know, it's interesting. 2020, I listened to more, like, trippy pedal steel music than I have in my whole life, you know? Like, there was a, f- a few records came out that I thought were really good, and, yeah, I mean, I listened to a bunch of that music, and it, it was so great. It was it was the antithesis of all the chaos that um, was sort of encircling life at that, you know, uh, and still is in some ways, you know, in many ways, but Mm -hmm. I think what's we, you know, it's all this stuff is on a a different scale. Like when you talk to uh, Margot Price, she was bringing up streaming, right. You know, and it's like, so if if you're on her scale, there's a real conversation that people want to have there, you know, and, uh, obviously this, you know, like the scale I'm on is streaming is not even on my radar, but the um, when you look at like numbers and stuff, it gets real confusing. Cause you don't, it's really hard to figure out. Um, Cause in some ways, like with social media and Bandcamp and all these different things, uh, things are less holistic, you know? So where people's revenue actually comes in, like you might be a writer on Twitter with 20,000 followers and maybe that looks like you're making money writing, but you're, but you're not, you're, a, you're on Twitter with 20,000 followers and that's your major platform that you're, um, whereas it, if your major mm-hmm. platform's Bandcamp, and that's how most people are going in, are kind of, uh, relating to you, then everything's monetized for the most part, unless they're just listening for the free previews, um, which we're all guilty of, but you know, like, you know, um, um sure, sure. But, so I think figuring out like what what are the numbers that people have to hit like what are actually what actually makes this stuff you know turn profit you know I mean for me like the book um, is is just about sold out now which is great but the like the numbers I don't know in the literary world if that I have no idea if that good bad indifferent like. <laughs> So it's so hard to kind of figure out like how far away that sustainability thing is for all these artists whose whose music you do love, you know. I mean, there's lots of these bands, um, you know, they they have jobs, you know, <laughs> and they're putting out the best records of but they're also working fifty hours per week or whatever. And so it's hard to figure those out. Um and it keeps changing. It's like a moving goalpost. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, I hope, you know, it's the DIY thing again, right? We're back to that. It's if you support the stuff that you like, money is just fertilizer. That's all I've ever figured out is that money is fertilizer. Everything you, that you put it on grows. If you go to McDonald's, there's going to be two McDonald's. If you go to Silver Current Records, there's going to be two new records, you know? So it's like,
2: that's that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's kind of how
3: that works.
0: Yeah, I mean, all this too. It's 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 an interesting. It's not like there's also the fact too. I mean, in the, to speak to the issue of you're saying, well, how many books did it sell, and how what is that up against like an industry standard or something? But I feel like those industry standards are a little bit out the window, and it, you know, the three of us are used to listening and loving and cherishing records that some of my favorite records of all time were put out an edition of 50 mm-hmm. and were never reissued. Granted, now, even though the artist won't see that money, you have to pay $500 for one of them on ebay <laughs> or something. Or their, and their influence, even if unsung, I mean, you know, for forever going back for me to the you know, 80s, 90s Japanese PSF stuff where these you know, the, the White Heavens, the High Rise, the KG Hainos would put yeah. out a record in 50 copies or 100 and it changed the fucking world. It mm-hmm. literally changed the history of music. Fifty people bought that thing, and I know, you know, 42 of them. I literally know 42 <laughs> of the people on the other eight yeah, yeah. The other 42 of us want to know where <laughs> they're at, you know. <laughs> but I guarantee you I can make a direct line from Nanjo's, you know, distortion through like limiter and compression mixes in the late 80s and 90s through to Kanye West's usage of them, and now the ubiquitous use of in all kinds of major, you know, top 10 Billboard production in the biggest albums on Earth. Um, You know, had it been done before? Yeah. But, you know, was it used to bombastic pop purposes before? Not like that, you know, Mm. and I don't know if Kanye West knows where it came from, but I fucking do. Yeah, yeah. You know, because of 50 records and one particularly that, you know, that you had to write away to somebody. They had to know somebody. They had to make a phone call. And, you know, eight months later and $60 down the line, you finally get this thing you've been hearing about from your other secret society <laughs> nerd friends, you know. And, um, yeah. So it all, you know, it's all of a different kind of value. And unfortunately, Nanjo doesn't get the you know, royalties from the big Kanye <laughs> Every, Well, yeah. I mean, you hear a distorted drum track on a the <laughs> Westbrook's record. Manjo's, you know, bank account. is. But,
2: yeah.
0: But so to me, I, you know.
2: To me, that's that thing. That's that thing where, where, where we talked earlier about how um, you're never going to run out of of these discoveries i mean i i I, that's how that's how i that's how i base my life basically is is the idea that like i'm never gonna hear it all i'm gonna die having unheard some of the greatest records that have ever been recorded and i'm not bothered by that i'm that's what (laughs) that's why i'm okay you know what i mean like but um, like why you
0: dig every single time at a yard sale. <laughs> you hear people are like, why do you keep bending over those things? It's just a bunch of records. Well, you know what? I'm going to die and the world will still be full of a million unheard pieces of beauty. The greatest records on earth will be discovered the day after I go. You know, it's, And that is that is a joyful pursuit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to to rap with me and talk about all this stuff. It was really fun. This is one of those ones where it's like we go we normally go an hour we went an hour and a half and i'm pretty confident we could go we with this this could keep going all afternoon so we'll have to have you guys back on for a second a second episode if that yeah, sounds man. cool Yeah, that'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, that would be great, Jason. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk yeah, to both and you it's guys. it's great to meet finally, yeah, Jason. absolutely. It's nice
2: yeah no it's so it's so good to to be on the screen uh digitally hanging out with you guys and uh thanks so much for sending this this great record and book and uh i appreciate you guys taking the time and awesome, we'll talk man again thank soon. you so much going to do it for this week's episode thanks so much for hanging out we appreciate you tuning in remember you can get transmissions wherever you get podcasts so let your friends know about the show if you are digging it i'm jason woodbury i write host and produce transmissions our audio is edited by andrew horton sarah goldstein and jonathan mark walls both do visual stuff for the show and our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. Before we head out, uh, a recommendation. I recommend, uh, since spring has sprung, that you take 20 minutes out of your day and watch Les Blank. God respects us when we work, but loves us when we dance. It's from 1968, and it was filmed at a 67 Easter Sunday love-in in Los Angeles. And, uh, If you are feeling the sort of spring vibes the way I am, it's gonna be uh, something that you're going to enjoy watching uh, some beautiful color footage of uh, flower children getting down to spontaneous combustion. Um, You can check it out on, I think the Criterion channel is streaming it, Uh, but perhaps you've asked yourself, do I really need the Criterion less blank box set always for pleasure? Uh, You do. Uh, don't don't, uh, don't talk yourself out of picking that up. All right, we'll be back next week. I'm really excited. Uh, next week's show, we're going to have Blake Mills and Pino Palladino. Uh, they've got a great new record out called Notes with Attachments. Both uh, tremendous favorites of mine. Pino, absolute legend. Uh, and it was really great to have them on the show. So tune in next week for that talk. Until then, stay safe. Uh, we'll speak soon.